This is chapter two of The Hunger Games. Um, before I start reading, could you please um, like get a copy of the book, maybe so you can follow along. Preston, I'm talking to you. Chapter two. One time when I was in the bl- I was in a blind tree waiting motionless for the game to wander by. I dozed off and fell ten feet on to the ground, landing on my back. It was as if the impact had knocked knocked every wisp of air out of my lungs. And I lay there struggling to inhale, to exhale, to do anything. That's how I feel right now, to remember how breathe, unable to speak, totally stunned as the name bounces around inside my skull. Someone is gripping my arm, a boy from the seam. I think maybe I started to fall and he caught me. There must have been some mistake. This can't be happening. Prim was one slip of paper in thousands. Her chances of being chosen were so remote that I didn't even bother worry about her. I hadn't I done everything, taken the test where you refused to let her do it the same. One slip, one slip in thousands. The odds had been entirely in her favor, but that hadn't mattered. Somewhere far away, I can hear the crowd murmuring unhappily, as they always do when a 12-year-old gets chosen, because no one thinks this is fair. And then I see her, the blood drained from her face, hands clenched in fists at her sides, walking with the stiff, small steps toward the stage, passing me. I see the back of her blouse has become untucked, and it hangs out over her skirt. This, It's this detail that the untucked blouse forming a ducktail brings me back to myself. Prim! A strangled cry comes out of my throat, and my muscles begin to move again. Prim! I don't need to shove through the crowd. The other kids make way immediately, allowing me a straight path to the stage. I reach her just as she's about to mount the steps. With one sweep of my arm, I push her behind me. I volunteer, I gasp. I volunteer as tribute. There's some confusion on the stage. District 12 hasn't had a volunteer in decades, and the protocol has become rusty. The rule is that one tribute's name has been pulled from the ball. Another eligible boy, if it's a boy's name, or red, or a girl's name, if it's a girl's name, if it has been red, can step forward and take his or her place. In some districts, which the winning reaping is such a great honor, people are eager to risk their lives. The volunteering is complicated. But in District 12, where the word tribute is pretty much synonymous with every with the word corpse, volunteers are all but extinct. Lovely, says Effie Trinket, but I believe there's a small matter of introducing the reaping winner and then asking for volunteers. And if one does come forth, then we, um, she trails off unsure of herself. What does it matter, says the mayor. He's looking at me with a pained expression on his face. He doesn't know me, really, but there's a faint recognition there. I'm the girl who brings him strawberries, the girl his daughter might have spoken on of occasion. The girl who's five years ago stood huddled with her mother and sister as he presented her, the oldest child, the Medal of Valor, the medal for her father, vaporized in the mines. Does he remember that? What does it matter, he repeats gruffly. Let her come forward. Prim screaming hysterically behind me. She's wrapped her skinny arms around me like a vice. No, Katniss, no, you can't go. Prim, let go, I say harshly, because this is upsetting me and I don't want to cry. When they televise the replay of the reaping, everyone will make note of my tears. She's wrapped her skinny arms around me like a vice. No, Katniss, no, you can't go. Prim, let go, I say harshly, because this is upsetting me and I don't want to cry. When they televise the replay of the reapings tonight, everyone will make note of my tears, and I'll be marked as an easy target. 
a weakling. I will give no one that satisfaction. Let go. I feel someone pulling her from my back. I turn around and see Gail has lifted Prim off the ground, and she's thrashing it in his arms. Up you go, catnip, he says in a voice that he's fighting to keep steady, and then he carries Prim off toward my brother. I steal myself and climb the steps. Well, bravo, gushes Effie Trinket. That's the spirit of the games. She's pleased to see we finally have a district with a little action going on. What's your name? I swallow hard. Katniss Everdeen, I say. I bet my buttons that was your sister. Don't want to let her steal all the glory, do we? Come on, everyone. Let's give a big round of applause for our newest tribute, thrills Effie Trinket. To the everlasting credit of the people of District 12, not one person claps, not even holding bedding slips. No, the ones are usually beyond caring, possibly because they know me from the hob, or they knew my father, or encountered Prim, who no one can help loving. So instead of acknowledging applause, I stand there unmoving while they take part in the boldest form of dissent they can manage. Silence, which says we do not agree, we do not condone, all of this is wrong. Something unexpected happens, or at least I don't expect it, because I don't think of District 12 as a place that cares about me. But a shift has occurred since I stepped up to take Prince's place. Now it seems I have become someone precious. At At first one, then another, then almost every member of the crowd touches the three middle fingers of their left hand to their lips and holds it out to me. It's an old and rarely used gesture of our district, occasionally seen at funerals. I think it means admiration or it means goodbye to someone you love. Now I'm truly in danger of crying, but fortunately, Hamish chooses this moment to come staggering across the stage to congratulate me. Look at her. Look at this one, he hollers, throwing an arm around my shoulders. He's surprisingly strong for such a wreck. I like her. His breath reeks of liquor, and it's been it's been a long time since he's bathed. Lots of, I can't think of a word for a while. He can't think of a word for a while. Spunk, he says triumphantly. More than you. He releases me and starts for the front of the stage. More than you, he shouts, pointing directly into a camera. Is he, address- is he addressing the audience, or is he so drunk he might actually be taunting the capital? I'll never know, because he's just opening his mouth to continue. Hamish plummets off the stage and knocks himself unconscious. He's disgusting, but I'm grateful. With every camera gleefully trained on him, I have enough time to release the small choked sound of my throat to compose myself. I see my... I see my hand behind my back and stare into the distance. I see the hills that I climbed this morning with Gail. For a moment, I yearn for something. The idea of us leaving the district, making our way in the woods. But I know I was right not running off, because who else would have volunteered for Prim? Hamish was whisked away in a stretcher, and Effie was trying to get the ball rolling again. What an exciting day, she warbles, as she attempts to straighten her wig, which has listed severely to the right. More excitement to come. It's time to choose our boy tribute. Clearly hoping to contain her tenuous hair situation, she plants one hand on her head and as she crosses to the ball that contains the boys' names and grabs the first slip she encounters. She zips back to the podium and I don't even have time to wish for Gail's safety as she's reading the name. Peter Malark. Peter Malark. Oh no, I think. Not him. Because I recognize this name. Although I've never spoken directly to its owner, Peter Malark. No, the odds are not my favorite today. I watch him as he makes towards the stage. Medium height, stocky build, ashy blonde hair falls in waves over his forehead. 
The shock of the moment registering on his face, you can see him struggle to remain emotionless. But his blue eyes show the alarm I've, se- I've seen so often in prey. Yet he climbs steadily onto the stage and takes his place. Effie Trinket asks for volunteers, but no one steps forward. He has two older brothers, I know. I've seen them in the bakery. But no one pro- but one is probably too old to volunteer, and the other won't. This is standard. Family devotion is only goes so far for most people on Reaping Day. What I did was the most radical thing. The mayor begins to read the long, dull treaty of treason that he does every year at this point. It's required. I'm not listening to a word. Why him, I think, trying to convince myself it doesn't matter. Peter Mullark and I are not friends, not even neighbors. We don't speak. Our only, our only real interaction happened years ago. He's probably forgotten about it, but I haven't. I know I never will. It was during the worst time. My father had been killed in the Mayan accident three months earlier, and it was the bitterness January anyone could remember. The numbness of his loss had passed, and the pain would hit me out of nowhere, doubling over me. Cracking my body with sobs. Where are you? I would cry out in my mind. Where have you gone? Of course, there was never any answer. The district had given us a small amount of money as compensation for his death, enough to cover uh, one month of grieving, at which time my mother would be expected to get a job. Only she didn't. She didn't do anything but sit propped up in a chair or more often huddled under the blankets of her bed, eyes fixed on some point in the distance. While in a while she'd stir up to get as if moved by some urgent purpose, then only leading to collapse back into stillness. No amount of pleading from Prim seemed to affect her. I was terrified. I suppose now that my mother was locked in some dark world of sadness. But at the time, all I knew that I had lost not only my father, but a mother as well. At 11 years old, with Prim just seven, I took over as head of the family. There was no choice. I bought our food at the market and cooked as best as I could. I tried to keep Prim and myself from looking presentable, because if I had become known that my mother could no longer care for us, the district would have taken taken us away from her and placed us in the community home. I'd grown up seeing those kids from kids at school, the sadness, the marks of angry hands on their faces, hopelessly curled their shoulders forward. I would never let that happen to Prim. Sweet, tiny Prim, who cried when I cried, even before she knew the reason. Who brushed and played in my mother's hair before we left for school. Who still polished my father's shaving mirror every each night because he hated the layer of cold dust that settled on every on everything in the scene. The community home had crushed her like a bug, so I kept our predicament a secret. But the money ran out, and we were slowly starving to death. There was no other way to put it. I kept telling myself, if I could only hold out till May, just May 8th, I would turn 12 and be able to sign up for Tessery, and we would get that precious grain and oil to feed us. There was only several weeks to go, but we would be dead by then. Starvation is not uncommon in District 12. Who hasn't seen the victims? Older people who can't work, children from a family with too many to feed, those injured in the mines, straggling through the streets. In one day, you'd come up upon them sitting motionless on a wall or lying in the meadow. You'd hear the wails from the house, and the peacekeepers are calling to retrieve the body. Starvation is never the death, officially, but it's always the flu or exposure or... or... I can't say it. Um, <laughs> hypothermia, but the fool that but that fools no one. On the afternoon, my encounter with Peter Mullark, the brain was swelling on 
relentless icy sheets. I had been in town trying to make some threadbare old by old baby clothes of prims in the public market, but there was no takers. Although I had been to the hob on several occasions with my father, I was too frightened to venture into the rough, gritty place alone. The rain had soaked through my father's hunting jacket, leading me chilled to the bone. For three days, we had nothing but boiled water and some old dried mint leaves I'd found in the back of the cupboard. But by the time the market closed, I was shaking so hard I dropped my bundle of baby clothes into a mud puddle. I didn't pick it up. For fear, I would kneel over and be able to regain my feet. Besides, no one wanted those clothes. I couldn't go home because at home was my mother with her dead eyes and my sweet little sister with her hollow cheeks and cracked lips. I couldn't walk into that room with smoky fire and the damp branches. I'd scavenged at the edge of the woods after the coal had run out, my hands empty of any hope. I found myself suddenly stumbling in a muddy lane behind the shops that serve the wealthiest townspeople, the merchants who live above their business. I was so essentially in their backyards. I remember the outlines of garden beds not yet planted for the spring, or a goat or two in a pen. One sodden dog tried to po- tied to a post, hunched, defeated in the muck. All forms of stealing are forbidden in District 12, punishable by death. It crossed my mind that there might be something in the trash bins, and those were fair game, perhaps a bone, a butcher's, or rotten vegetables of the grocers. Something that no one but my family was so desperate enough to eat. Fortunately, unfortunately, the bins had just been emptied. When I passed by the bakers, a smell of fresh bread was so overwhelming I felt dizzy. The ovens were in the back. The golden glow spilled out through the open kitchen door. I stood memorized by the heat and the luscious scent until the rain interfered, running its icy fingers down my back, forcing me back into life. I lifted the lid off my the baker's trash can bin and found it spotlessly, heartlessly bare. Suddenly, a voice was screaming at me, and I looked up and see the baker's wife telling me to move on, and I did. I didn't want her to call the peacekeepers, and how sick she was of having those brats from the seam pawing through her trash. And the words were ugly. I had no defense. As I carefully replaced the lid, I backed away. I noticed him, a boy with blonde hair peering out from behind his mother's back. I see him at school. He was in my ear, but I didn't know his name. He stuck out with the town kids, so how would I know? My, his mother had went back in the bakery grumbling, but he must have had been watching me. As I made my way behind the pen that held their pig and leaned against the far side of the old apple tree, the realization that I had nothing to take from his home had finally sunk in. My knees had buckled, and I slid down a tree trunk into its roots. I, it was too much. Then the sick and weak of tired, oh, so tired, let them call the peacekeepers, take us to the community home, I thought, or better yet, let me die right here in the rain. There was a clatter in the bakery, and I heard the woman screaming again, and the sound of a blow. I vaguely wondered what was going on. Feet sloshed towards me in the mud, and I thought, thought, it's her. She's coming to drive me away with a stick. But it wasn't her. It was the boy. In his arms, he carried two large loaves of bread that must have fallen into the fire because the crusts were scorched black. His mother was yelling, feed the pig, you stupid creature. Why not? No one decent will buy burned bread. He began to tear off chunks from the burned parts and toss them into the trough. In the front bakery, bell rang, and the mother disappeared to help a customer. The boy never even glanced my way, but I was watching him. Because of the bread, because of the red wheel that had stood around his cheekbone, what she had hit him with. 
My parents never hit us. I couldn't even imagine it. The boy took one look back in the bakery as if checking the coast was clear, and then his attention back on the pig, he threw a loaf of bread in my direction. The second quickly followed, and then sloshed back into the bakery, closing the kitchen door tightly behind him. I stared at the loaves of bread in disbelief. They were fine, perfect, except really for the burned areas. Did he mean for me to have them? He must have, because they were at my feet. Before anyone could witness what had happened, I shoved gloves under my shirt and wrapped the hunting jacket tightly about me and walked swiftly away. The heat of the bread burned into my skin, but I clutched it tighter, clinging to my life. By the time I'd reached home, the loaves had cooled somewhat, but the insides were still warm. When I dropped them on the table, that Prim's hands reached to tear off a chunk, but I made her sit, forced my mother to join us at the table and pour some warm tea. I scraped off the black stuff and sliced the bread. We ate an entire loaf, slice by slice. It was good hearty bread, filled with raisins and nuts. I put on my dry clothes at, I put my clothes to dry at the fire, crawled into bed and next and fell into a dreamless sleep. It didn't occur to me until the next morning the boy had a, might have burned those the bread on purpose, had have dropped those loaves into the flame knowing it meant being punished, and then delivered them to me. But I had dismissed this. I must it must have been an accident. Or why would he have done it? He didn't even know me. Still, throwing the bed was an enormous kindness that would have surely resulted in a beating if discovered. I couldn't explain his actions. We ate slices of bread for breakfast and headed to school. It was as if spring had come overnight. Warm, sweet air, fluffy clouds at school. I passed the boy in the hall. His cheek had swelled up and his eyes blackened. He was with friends and didn't acknowledge me in any way. But as I collected Prim and started and started for home that afternoon, I found him staring at me from across the schoolyard. Our eyes had only met for a second, and then he turned his head away. I dropped my gaze, embarrassed, and that's when I saw it, the first dandelion of the year. The bell went off in my head, and I thought hours, hours spent in the woods with my father and how I knew he, we, we were never going to survive. This day, I could never shake the connection between the boy, Peter Mullark, and the bread he gave me, and the, that bread gave me hope. The dandelion that reminded me I was not doomed, and more than once I turned into the school hallway and caught my and caught his eyes strained on me, if only to quickly flit away. I felt like I owed him something. I hate owing people. Maybe if I had thanked him at some point, or feeling less conflicted now. Now... I thought about it a couple times, and the opportunity never seemed to present itself, and now it never will, because we are going to be thrown into an arena to fight to the death. Exactly how am I supposed to work out a thank you in there? Somehow, it just wouldn't seem sincere if I'm trying to slit his throat. The mayor finishes the dreary the dreary trinity of treason and motions for Peter and me to shake hands. His are solid and warm as a loaf of bread. Peter looked me straight in the eye and gave my hand what I think meant to be a reassuring squeeze. Maybe it's just ner nervous spasm. He turned back and faced the anthem of the place. Oh, well, I think there will be 24 of us. Odds are someone else will kill him before I do. Of course, the odds have never been very dependable of late.